Welcome back to another episode of ODRC Voices. Today we're sitting down with Christine Money, former warden here with the Department of Corrections. Chris, how are you? I'm great, Grant. Good. So let's let's talk about kind of the experience you have with the department. Kind of share with us um, what you have done and where you have been when you were with DRC. Well, I started at the Chillicothe Correctional Institution as a social worker assigned to the substance abuse program. And then I went to the Lima Correctional Institution where I was director of social work, uh, social services. It's a position that doesn't even exist anymore. Then I went to the Ohio Reformatory for Women as a deputy warden. And then my first warden assignment was in 1988 at the Frank, I opened the Frank Pre-release center at that time was a uh, prison for women, and then I went back to ORW as the warden there from uh, '92 to '96, and then I did a ten-year stint as warden at the Marion Correctional Institution. So let, let's start with um, your time as warden at ORW. Mm-hmm. What was that like? And and we've we see a lot of videos and stuff online about ORW and the work that Ronnie Burke's board now mm-hmm. is doing there. Uh, what was your time like at ORW? Um, it was really a wonderful time. Um, I had a lot of pretty creative and innovative uh, staff, and we really it was an era of really looking at programs for women offenders. And I remember um, it was important to us to offer domestic violence counseling, parenting programs. Um, the challenge at ORW. Uh, it was and still is uh, the number of women on the mental health caseload. Uh, I recall being there, um, and out of about 1,650 women, 600 of them were on the mental health caseload. So it was really dealing with a lot of serious um, mental illness. Um, the other thing about ORW that I really liked was that it was um, has multi missions. So there was it was reception. It housed all security levels. Uh, um, and it, you know, it, so you really it was a it was a good learning um, institution for staff because they literally got exposed to every aspect of the department. Where on the male side, they had at that point twenty some institutions that did those functions, and they were all done in one place. So um, it, it was a challenging place to run, but it was those were really good days. So how did your time as warden? at ORW prepare you uh, to move over to Marion? Well, it, uh, certainly being the warden at Franklin and at, at uh, ORW prepared me for the warden job in that it, it um, you know, you're kind of the, well, you are the managing officer and you are responsible for budgets and um, you're responsible for labor relations um, you know, activities and just managing a large group of people. At that time, ORW probably had over 400 um, employees and contractors. So just the administrative part of running a prison prepared me uh, for Marion. So when you get to Marion, what, I guess, what, what was your, your, what did you decide you wanted to work on first when you got to Marion? Well, I had some marching orders. Um, at that time, in 1996, Marion had been under a federal consent decree for conditions of confinement that actually ba- dated back to the 70s. Mm-hmm. And Director Wilkinson and the um, leadership at DRC was very concerned about that because this is now 1996. So part of it was, let's wrap it up. 
do what we have to do to get out of federal court. And so that was one, you know, pretty serious issue to that walk in and, and address. Um, I did find when I got there, though, that there was a team in place that was already had been working on it. Mm-hmm. And so we just continued the work that had been got, begun. But the other um and the other task that I was given was to try my management style at Marion, which I thought was was kind of interesting. But my management style was to engage labor unions and leadership and get them involved in assisting in the management of the prison. That had not been the history at Marion. There was a pretty contentious labor management atmosphere. So what, what, besides getting out of federal court, one was, you know, figure out a way to engage and involve the union. So I did that. And so um, one of the first things I did was I think I was there less than a month and we did an off-site strategic planning retreat, half labor, half management staff, about 60 people. And then we basically set the course for the institution for the next year. And I did that every year I was there. So we had at the table um, uh, representatives in every bargaining unit as well as management staff. And we decided at those annual events what we were going to do the next year in the prison. That was huge in in helping change the climate of that place. The other thing that I did was I embraced the community of faith. In fact, I reached out to them, and um, there was not a lot of programming. There was very little. There there was the the normal standardized program. There were good education programming, uh, good recovery service, all the things that were standard, but beyond that, there wasn't a lot to keep inmates involved and active, and there wasn't a lot going on um, in the – there were some things. There's always good things going on, but probably just not enough to keep 2,000 men actively engaged. So reached out to the faith community who responded. Cairo's prison ministry responded and brought in literally over those years hundreds of volunteers. And then we then um, added uh, Kairos Torch for the younger offenders. Um, We added Kairos Outside for female loved ones and just began to explore other things. And one of the things that happened when we brought Kairos in was these are people from the community that have other interests and skill sets. Mm -hmm. So I had a woman who was a professor at a college and came and wanted to teach Spanish. Her Mm -hmm. husband had been a Kairos volunteer and her husband came in and taught uh, JavaScript um, Mm. computer um, design programming um, software design so um, we had other people that offered to do other things that besides coming in and doing the initial thing that they came into we had people that came in to do Kairos but then ended up leading the the choir we had so there was just a so there, there was a lot uh, one of the things that I did was in addition to reaching out to the staff uh, for a partnership I reached out to the offenders so when it came I, I remember one time I we got a um, um, 
central office had a pot of money and they wanted to seed some creative and innovative programming. So I shot that out to the uh, department heads and said, does anybody have a good idea? And the prison chaplain came and said, I think we should do a uh, faith-based dormitory. And um, at that point, we had a lot of Christian programming. And so I remember saying to him, you know, I'm a little bit concerned that we, you know, we we probably need to be more inclusive. So we designed the Horizon program, which was the first multi-faith housing unit residential program. And it turns out in the world. So we ended up getting a lot of international visitors. But what we did with that was we brought to the table Jewish, Christian, and Muslim inmates, uh, an imam and a rabbi and a Christian chaplain. And we sat at a table much like this. And over some months, uh, we wrote a proposal. We got funded by the department. And we um, then opened the Horizon Unit in in August of 2000. So. So um, that actually spurred a lot of attention. Uh, We didn't really realize it at the time how unique it was, but um, ACA, Chaplains Association, honored it. And we then started getting calls literally from all over the world and had delegations from England and Australia and Ireland, um, South Africa, Moldova, Romania, Mexico Mm. are the ones I can recall offhand. So we, it was kind of fun because we got to meet people literally from all over. And, um, so that went so well that I, that we, that became kind of a standing procedure that when we were designing programming that we would bring, um, offenders to the table as well as staff and sometimes volunteers. Mm -hmm. So we did that for Lifeline. We brought, uh, 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 in teachers from the community that taught um, computer science, and we started with the concept that um, every inmate should have the opportunity to become computer literate, and that that was our the big idea. And then what en- ended up happening was we ended up setting up Lifeline, which uh, in its height had uh, 800 men a week were signed up for programming there to learn keyboarding, then ultimately Microsoft sweet so um so that's kind of, and then pnn we did kind of the same thing brought the men to the table to design it and in that case um the men designed that mm-hmm. um so and that that ended up being a tv station that mm-hmm. in internally that was on the air all day every day with some inmate programming and movies and educational things so so the things that I consider wildly successful there all had inmate input and staff and volunteers so it was so, just a different um, when you approach it from bringing everyone to the table what impact did you see then um, from that on the institution um, we saw over time um, a dramatic decrease in violence. Um, people, uh, inmates were engaged, busy. They were doing po- you know positive things, and they owned. They felt ownership, so it became very important to them. And I remember when we used to do the Kairos outside weekends, you bring women in. I remember the first one thinking, "Oh my God, there's going to be eighty women in this institution, other than going to a local hotel at night, Friday night, all day Saturday, and all all day Sunday." And I'm thinking, "What was I thinking?" But one of the things I noticed when we brought women 
women in, and we also did my child and I day and brought children mm-hmm. in. I had done that, done that at both Franklin and ORW, where women could bring children and have a day with them with a lot of activity. When I got to Marion, I thought, these guys are dads. They need to step up. They need to be engaged with kids. But I noticed on those days, the rest of the institution was very, very quiet. Mm. And I believe out of respect for the men that had either a female loved one in the institution or a child, I think that they knew that those were important days and they knew not to mess it up for others. So can you explain a little bit, you you mentioned um, with Kairos Outside, the women staying at a hotel on Mm -hmm. Friday night. Can you explain a little bit about uh, what Kairos Outside was and is? Yeah. Kairos Outside is a spiritual, it's a Christian retreat weekend for women who have an incarcerated loved one. And we asked to do a model at MCI where typically those weekends happen at a retreat center somewhere. What we asked at MCI was, could our men host their female loved ones. So they would see them on Friday afternoon as the women came in, then they would be gone until the whole thing was over on Sunday. And then they'd see them at the very end. And it's a team of women from the community that come in. And there's a series of talks very similar to Cairo's. And um, there's a whole lot of connecting. Generally, women who have an incarcerated loved one don't know other women and that they feel very alone and isolated. And to walk into a room where there's 40 other women in the exact same situation was pretty overwhelming to them. So it provided them a lot of support in a community and um, it just was a weekend um, about Christ's unconditional love for them. And so it was all about serving them. And the men did the behind the scenes things. They weren't seen on the weekend. In fact, that was one of the um, criteria for us even being allowed to do it was they had to be just out of sight. But it was a weekend of uh, treating them with dignity and respect of uh, and just unconditional love. So the whole thing was just pouring love on them. And then um, so we saw, I saw a lot of families heal, a lot of reunification. I remember one woman stood up at the end of the first one and she looked at her husband and said, Michael, I was planning to leave you, Mm. but I'm going, I'm not going to, I'm Mm. going to wait for you. And she did. And so I just, and, um, just saw some others, uh, daughters, you know, men would invite their adult daughters to come. Um, just saw a lot of healing. And then with the women, um, they would say that their anxiety level about having a loved one in that prison decreased dramatically because they were in there. Mm-hmm. They got to interact with people and they said, I'm going to now sleep better mm-hmm. knowing that they're here. Very cool. So when you look at the Horizon program that you guys designed and created from scratch, when you look at bringing all these um, different religions together mm-hmm. under one roof, uh, I'm sure at first there, that might have been met with a little bit of hesitation or resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, what did that do to transform uh, Marion Correctional? Um, it just opened a lot of conversations, and the design team modeled how to get along what what we what the whole idea was was to for the people that were participating was for them to deepen their own faith commitment whatever that was and then to learn 
to respect and tolerate people who believe differently. So there was little tracks in their own faith. And then there was an interfaith track where they were learning about all world religions. And so I think that it, um, it opened people up to look at things differently. And then I do remember on um, 9-11 that we were into our second season. And when the planes hit... Um, I sent everybody back to their housing units because at that point we had no idea what was going on. There was the first one, the second one, the Pentagon. So it was pretty unsettling. So we sent everybody back that morning. And I heard later that in Horizon, all the inmates, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim, circled up and prayed together. Mm. And that was a sign, huge sign to me that they were... I'm trying to understand uh, each other and trying to come together as a community. So there was a lot of very poignant things that happened in that dorm. Um, so it was um, it was quite a program. <laughs> so you you end your time with Department of Corrections. You go to youth services for a few years, mm-hmm. and when you retire, you. You don't get out of the world of corrections. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you decided to do after retirement. Well, I was asked to join the board of directors of an organization that's called today called Kindway. And I did actually while I was still at DYS, but the December of 10, I went to my second board meeting in January and the one and only employee had resigned. And so I just looked at that as that's the door. I knew I wanted to do something in ministry. I knew I wanted to do something to assist in the reentry efforts. I didn't know what that was going to be particularly, but I would have told you that the last four or five years or several years of my working career that I was would be looking for that opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that opportunity presented itself, and I, I took that job, and I put together a team. Again, what really worked inside was uh, three successful ex-offenders, uh, some Kairos volunteers, and some retired prison, three retired prison wardens, and then some current DRC um, executive staff. And we um, said, okay, if we were going to design a reentry program, what would it look like? So we literally started from scratch. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, well, we want to do, we want to serve both men and women. We wanted to go where we thought we would be most welcome. And that would have been Marion and ORW. And uh, they're, as far as I was concerned, very volunteer friendly and welcoming. So um, then we thought we wanted to engage with men and women this is a, this is a design team plan. This wasn't like my total like total idea. We really worked and prayed about this a lot. We thought that it was important to build the relationships at least one or two years in advance of release. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to be okay. Now it's time to go home in two weeks. What do you? What's the plan? We wanted to engage in community. We wanted to prepare them. So then we thought, well, if we're going in a year or two, a, a, you know, early 
or con to connect, what would we do and what would it look like? So we thought we would want to do what it takes to equip people for success. So it's a it's a Christian ministry. So we decided that we wanted to do Celebrate Recovery, which is a 12-step recovery program. But it's not it doesn't have to be addiction. It's brokenness. A person identifies an area of brokenness and works on that for the 10 months they're in our program. And then we went on a search. This was my job. To, my job was to find the best reentry curriculum. So we were. I was looking for the best evidence-based reentry curriculum, and actually, DRC staffers helped me with that. And everybody else that I talked to, I, I get kept getting connected or appointed in the way of, of a company called the Change Companies, and they do correctional curriculum for programming. It's a lot in recovery service, and and also, and I was fam familiar with it, but um, so reached out to them. And so we do a cognitive restructuring program called Getting It Right. There's 10 interactive journals, and um, and it's it's evidence-based in that CBT um, works. It, if, uh, if it helps uh, correct criminal thinking errors, in fact, thinking for a change is, is based on CBT. So the idea is, um, in this, is to help men and women move from criminal thinking toward pro-social thinking. And then the other... Thing that we thought was very important was to have mentors and again the same idea bring mentors in a year or two in advance and have them stay connected with somebody as they are released um, we made um, a major change in the way we did that the first year it was kind of like blind date we would select we would recruit a mentor and then pair them with somebody mm -hmm. and only about 50 percent of those relationships stuck and so then um, a best practice in mentoring is have the person, the mentee, have a voice in selecting their mentor. So we moved toward that model and have had, you know, major success with that. So we go to the man or woman about 60 days or so prior to release and say, who have you developed a connection with here? Mm -hmm. And then we go to those people and, and it just works out. As soon as we quit controlling it, it worked out much better. <laughs> you know, what, what success have you seen in, has it been seven years now? Yeah, we're in season, middle of season number seven. We start in August, graduate in June every year, and then people rotate out that next year. Mm -hmm. um, we have 95 people that had started inside have transitioned out. We have had two women recommit felonies and reoffended. So that was the only uh, new crimes out of those people. And we had three people violate a parole rule that went back briefly. Um, and, and in those cases, none of them um, uh, committed even a misdemeanor. They were parole rules. So they were in and bounced in and out in six, two 60 days and one 90 day. So, um, so it's, and for those people, the people that did return, whether it was briefly or for a new crime, um, no one that has completed the inside program and in the one year post release, none of those people have returned. Mm -hmm. So the recidivism rate is zero for them. What does the post release um, model look like for your organization? Well, we um, 
everybody has a navigator, so that's their mentor. Some of them have two, um, just depending on how things work out. We do case management, so we assist them in transition to um, where they're, wherever they're going. Generally, if they're women, we have a partnership with Rachel's House in Woman of Excellence. And if it's a man, we operate a duplex uh, that we call the Embark House, and the men go there. Um, so we we make sure we I, I say that we journey we, we accompany them on their journey to independence. So we don't tell them what to do and and we're not you know take, take off my prison warden hat and um, we but we we work first of all we work with a detailed plan inside. We work on a transition plan months before they get out. So. They work on where they're going to live, what kind of jobs they're interested in. We make sure uh, they get their identification. We provide bus passes so they make sure they can get to job interviews. We connect them with employers. Um, we make sure they have food and clothes, and just it just depends. It's a, I call it a human safety net, mm-hmm. and we and everybody's different. Um, when we started, we had very few job partners. It was honestly the first year of people coming out was excruciating because we would accompany them on their interviews, and it would be an application process, and it would be door slammed after door slammed. So. We then developed a couple of partnerships. Um, most of those were part-time jobs. Most of those were lower-paying wage jobs. Kind of fast forward a few years, we now have employers that will employ our people with full-time permanent jobs with benefits. So, But that has been a journey over time. Um, what's happened is our people have done so well on, in, in employment that they have... Uh, employers actually now ask us when mm. to expect some others. We have a wonderful partnership with Vicki Miller and a program called TAP. That's Training Assessment Placement Project. And she is a retired, um, uh, well, she was a vocational teacher, worked with me at, at ORW, then worked for the union, uh, OEA. But when she retired, retired, she started this company. And what she did was she engages um, manufacturers to hire ex-offenders. So, and then she preps them and coaches them. So she and I connected a few years ago, and that really opened the door for some really wonderful employment opportunities for our men and some women. So how do you get to a point, Chris, where you spend your life in corrections, you retire, and you go back to it? Well, I was always inside. <laughs> so I, um, I saw people come back. And a lot, many times, uh, men and women come back who I thought I'd never see again. And when I asked them what happened, it, there was always different, but different stories. But the challenges were overwhelming in transition. So I just knew that there had to be a way to approach it to knock down some of those barriers. And I mean, I didn't even I didn't know what it was. What I was really overwhelmed with having zero experience working with anybody outside the fence. Because once they left prison, I had enough people to worry about coming in. So I, I, I knew that there was barriers and challenges. I never realized until I started doing this job how enormous those are, how huge barriers are to people that have a prison record. So our job becomes being advocates and standing in the gap for them. 
for example, if uh, you want to go to college, you have to have some references. If you want to, when you apply for a job, you have to put down references. When um, we've advocated, uh, if you're, if you're, um, uh, trying to rent an apartment, somebody, and you've been in prison for 10 or 15 mm. years or sometimes longer, who's going to, who are you going to put down for a reference that even knows you or could do that? So we find ourselves doing that a lot. Mm. And, and then also talking with employers and saying, you know, this is the track record of our men and women. And this, and when you hire them, you actually get all of us. And so we've been pretty successful it's taken a lot of time, but we've been pretty successful at that. So what have you found is the importance of communities getting involved with their, with an individual's reentry? It's critical for employment and housing primarily, and it's important for the faith community to welcome them and into their church. Or in our case, it's everybody is, is a... Christ follower. So, um, and some places are more welcoming than others. Hmm. And so one of the things we do is discern where our, uh, our folks can come in and, and be w- truly welcomed. Um, so it's important for the community to give folks a chance, you know, and it's, it, there's some risk at that. Um, when you hire people who have a criminal record or when you lease an apartment, um, to someone, mm-hmm. um, with a criminal record, but we have found people that will do that, and it's generally worked out pretty well. Awesome. Well, Chris, I thank you for taking time out of your day and coming in and sharing your story with us. Mm-hmm.